Hey guys, you wear underwear? Yes. Yes, all every, all the time, every day. All the time? Yeah. I do most of the time, but every not today because we do not have an underwear sponsor. This show comes to you without sponsorship, without support. We're going commando. It's the Film the Canada podcast. Woo! This is a podcast about Canadian movies. That guy's Alexander. And I'm looking at two people. One of them is Chris and one of them is William. All right. Hi. Hello. Uh, this is a little bit out of our normal stream of conversation. We usually pick an older Canadian movie to talk about, um, but we had an opportunity to sit down with filmmaker Mina Shum to talk about her new movie, Meditation Park. In theaters, March 9th. <laughs> Nation, nationwide? No, it's uh, Canada, Canada in theaters. Yeah. And simultaneously on Netflix in different countries. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Alexander, thanks for getting in touch with Bonnie to set up the interview. Yes, you're welcome. Uh, you weren't able to join us, so Chris and I talked to Mina. Yes. Um, now, we, you guys previously talked about the movie when we did our uh, Vancouver International Film Festival coverage. And Recap, yeah. Yeah, you guys were pretty positive about it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners can go back to that to uh, hear our thoughts on it, hear sure. your guys' thoughts on it. Yeah, I don't think, because I think we were um, going through, a, you know, a, about 20 movies, I don't think we got a chance to really get into the meat of it, but we did explain that uh, we had different viewing audiences mm. when we saw Meditation Park. I saw it at the Rio. Alexander saw it downtown. The Playhouse, yeah. At the Playhouse, so and that, I think uh, that was crowds. the I think that was the, or no, it wasn't the premiere, but it was the day after the premiere. It was, it was in a matinee show, and there were, yeah, the audience was, was really into it. And Oh, my audience was really into it as yeah. well. It was an evening show at the Rio, but it was, uh, it was a full house and very enthusiastic crowd. Nice. Um, yeah, I think, I, I mean, I hope that that translates to its wider release. I don't know that I, I don't know that you can count on that being a Canadian movie being released theatrically, but hopefully it is successful and lots of people go out and see it. Um, and it's, um, it's, I mean, it's fifth feature. Mm. Uh, so we talked about double happiness on a previous episode as well. So listeners can... Uh, check that out. And um, without further ado, here's the interview. We're sitting here with uh, filmmaker Mina Shum, writer-director of Meditation Park, which opens in Vancouver and Toronto on March the 9th. And uh, does it have openings uh, elsewhere in the world? Uh, We are uh, premiering on Netflix in the US, UK, and Australia on March 9th. There's going to be a theatrical release of the film, not only in Canada, but in the Middle East, Colombia, and Israel right now. It's, uh, it's amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. That's very exciting. It is very cool. We just sold oh, the film great. to China as well. We don't, but we don't, the, the plans have not, we just made the deal, so I don't know what they're going to do with it. But it's, um, if it's not on Netflix, it's on Amazon Prime. So 
It's kind of cool. That's so great. I know. That's, I'm so lucky. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I just want everyone to see it. So the fact that it's accessible is is really important. Well, let's uh, let's uh, go back in time just slightly. Uh, Mentation Park premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival in September of 2017. Then it was the uh, opening gala film at the Vancouver International Film Festival last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and you attended, uh, I know that you were at the Vancouver. Um, yeah, and I went premiere. to the TIFF screening yeah. too. I've been to almost all, we just had our U.S. premiere at Santa Barbara Film Festival. We premiered in Goa, India in November, and I went there. It's been um, quite a journey with the movie. I, I just found out we're playing Stockholm. So you, you don't even know who's programmed the movie. It's like when, the world's big, right? So it's like I'm always playing. People are texting me and going, I just saw your films playing in Norway. And it's like, what? Okay, awesome. And does it feel wild that this very intimate story that feels like a local story in a way is translating into countries like Stockholm or like, you know, Switzerland and Sweden. Mm-hmm. I, I have faith that the human experience told intimately and specifically can translate. It's, it's why Nab- we care about Nabokov's work still. We, we care about Chekhov and we're not Russian. <laughs> you know, um, I, I've always had faith in that. And certainly with other films that I've made, um, that are that are Vancouver stories, that are Chinese-Canadian even, I would say, cultural empowerment tales, those have always, they've done well. People, I think, because of the human flow, we, we've, everybody's gone everywhere. There's immigrants everywhere. And if you have immigrants, you have isolated immigrants, you have a disparity in power, you have people finding their place, try, finding their voice, you have humor, and that translates anywhere you are. The hometown audience went bananas. So I was at the Rio oh, yeah, uh, one yeah. of the nights and packed house, yeah. you were there, the audience just loved it. Yeah. And so how does it feel, how does it translate in other cities when you're sitting in? It's, well, Santa Barbara, for instance, which is the most recent audience I had. Um, we had three screenings there. And it was, to me, a real test because Santa Barbara is not a big Asian community. It's not even really um, an immigrant community. It's, somebody said, it's the newly wed and the nearly dead. <laughs> I didn't say it. it was a local that said that to me. And, but a lot of intelligent um, film fans uh, mature, predominantly white, and they went nuts. Like suddenly, it's, it's so funny, you know, you look at like, people make such assumptions from just looking at people, but like I looked at my audience there and I was like, oh, intellectual urbanites, uh, art house crowd, great. Uh, you know, probably 15th generation American, you know, came here a long time ago. And then as soon as the film was over, I had men coming up to me who were like, that's my, that's my family from Sicily that you depicted. And um, so that was really heartwarming. Um, so I'm delighted that uh, people can see themselves in this. My whole goal, I mean, with creating such a character was to find... If if I can be um, the Bruce Willis character in Die Hard, if I can take that on when I'm watching a movie, then why can't a Bruce Willis type be a Maria in the uh, in the audience? Right. That this is I I believe I believe the world is inclusive in that way. I'm just going to go with that, and then if you build it, they will come. Right. So um, to see that that's being proved right is really heartwarming to me. Like the first women that came up to me at the TIFF screening 
world premiere of the movie. I have no idea if it's, if it's going to be... Like, I've been to screenings of films where it's the world premiere and then no one's talking at the end because they were so depressed. Or Not my films, but other films where it's like, you know, the women in the washroom can't even look at each other. They're just feeling awful or whatever's happening. And after my film was over, after the Q&A, these three South Asian women came up to me in their 30s crying, going, oh my God, this was... This is my this was my family. I recognized my experience in this. I recognized my mother's experience in this. And they didn't look anything like me. Right? And so that that to me, that's like that makes me believe in the power of cinema, that it's real, like that we well, can translate. You had made that observation that you were seeing your parents on screen. I did say that. Yeah, and then yeah. I said that I had shared an experience with my mother growing up that I could absolutely see Maria in my mother and how limited your choices are when you may not have an education and you don't know how to drive and you've only worked minimum wage jobs or you've been, you know, a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. That you don't have a lot of choices when it comes to making monumental decisions about leaving a marriage or making big changes. Well, she really doesn't have... I... Her character came out of my observations of many women in, in... my family, women I see on the street, but women you don't hear about in television. They are not the Sex in the City women. It is not Hollywood's perception of the liberated, entitled female. In fact, you could say there's it's such as a story that's such um, has had no shed no light on her story. There's nobody nobody's really talking about these people. That when you see someone like Maria, it's almost like you're going, oh, nobody's like that. And it's like, yeah, actually. There's a whole generation of women who missed the liberation of the 60s because they were too busy raising children. But also, there are women who are immigrating to Canada today, to the U.S. today. Um, I just met, my friend was housing, um, uh, she, she took in some Syrian refugees, and her husband spoke for her. And my girlfriend kept going, telling the, wo- the wife, you need to learn to speak English. Not because, um, uh, you know, that's the predominant language, but because you want power. Right. You don't want to be able to, you don't want to be waiting for your husband for everything. And, and so, and that was causing tension, you know, right. <laughs> right then and there. So. Do you think that if Bing and Maria were more recent immigrants, that because we live in a city that's so incredibly expensive, that you would have to be working outside the home? And so you wouldn't have that sense of isolation or do you think that new immigrants could also experience the same sort of isolation that Maria experienced because she wasn't forced to work outside the home and, and interact in English primarily as much as Bing was? I think that both those situations could exist today. It depends. Like um, like with this one Syrian family that I know, they uh, the husband's English was a little bit better. She did t- She did get work, but she got work with other Syrian women. So um, her English wasn't going to improve, and that they were they, they were running a Syrian catering company oh. or something, you know. So her English was not going to necessarily improve. And also, I think you're bound by the traditions in which you left your country. Sure. So there's no. There, it's not like you come to Canada and go, "Oh my God, there's women's lib." It's like if there's no women's lib when you immigrated, there's still no women's lib. Right. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> Um, I'd like to ask you about the casting of Chen Pei-Pei. Then. Mm. For me, uh, I mean, I know her from uh, martial arts movies like yeah. 1966's uh, uh, Come Drink With Me mm-hmm. and then 2000 uh, Encroaching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Were you familiar with her um, other 
body of work in Hong Kong that uh, that clued you into how she could play such a uh, a domestic role? Well, I I, mean, I of course I knew her as the Queen of Swords, right? Um, and I was looking for someone who had that kind of legacy behind them. So it was so great that she is in all the roles that she's played previous to this. She is the woman of power, right? So it was a lovely kind of casting accident that she ended up playing the most powerless person in a film. Um, she was in a British independent film called Lilting two years before I cast her in my film. And, and she is basically a, um, a lonely immigrant woman whose son dies in a car accident and her son's friend, Ben Winshaw, from, uh, who plays Q in all the Bond movies, comes and tells her and then mourns and grieves with her. And we eventually find out that Ben's character is her son's lover. So he comes, you know, so like, like he's the dead son never told his mom. And, and it's the friendship between Pei Pei and Ben Winshaw that the film is about. It's a very, very contained chamber piece. Like it really takes place in her home. And I could see the most complicated emotions. And the other thing is she doesn't speak English in the film. So she doesn't really speak much in the film. And it was all facial expressions. I could see that um, she had a range that some of the Kung Fu movies didn't let her demonstrate. But it was. But re what really convinced me is I flew out to Shanghai to meet her. When, when she read the script and said, I'll do it, I went, great, but I have to meet you. And um, I remember uh, Andrew, her manager, was like, you can do a Skype call. It's like, no, I want to hold her hand. I want to look in her eyes. And it was great because it forced my mother and I to go to Shanghai. I made my mom come with me. It was great. <laughs> so we had this little crazy trip in Shanghai and visiting my family in Hong Kong. But when Pepe showed up for lunch, she sat down and she started talking to me in English. And I kept trying to speak to her in my wonderful Cantonese to show like, hey, I'm Cantonese speaking, you know, her language is Shanghaiese and Mandarin, really. So we were kind of at cross purposes. But she really wanted to let me know that she had lived in Los Angeles for 10 years, um, just before the Crouching Tiger time. And she had raised three kids and she got a divorce. And something happened. The husband, something. Mm -hmm. Not sure, never asked. But she was absolutely committed to bringing Maria to life. So that kind of go get them, uh, that kind of spark, that kind of fire, that you can't, you can't ask for anything better than that. Like she had a personal connection suddenly. And because um, like, I you know, I'd thought about casting like Hong Kong starlet, aging Hong Kong starlet who'd never lived here. And what happens is then they don't speak English and they don't quite understand the disconnect of isolation because they're like, if you're a Hong Kong starlet, you have a limo driver. You have your own cell phone. You have everything that 2018 can afford, right? right. So um, for Pepe to have lived through it was uh, really important to the genesis of that character, I think. The way that Pepe speaks English in your movie, um, is that the way she speaks English? Or is that her version of the immigrant housewife who, who's, who has imperfect English? That's as that's her English. Yeah, I actually catered. It was funny because my memory of Shanghai was like, oh my god, her English is so good. And I went through the script and I wrote more English into it. Because one of the things when you're writing a movie that's in two, th it's in three languages really. Shanghai, uh, it's in Mandarin, uh, Cantonese, and English. Is you don't want people to be flipping too much from subtitle to non-subtitle to subtitle. You want to make the journey easy for the viewer, right? So I was like, oh, more English in it. And then when we got to set, I realized there was just some words that were really hard for her to say. Like, when, in conversation with her, 
she's choosing the words that she can say well. But, you know, Mina, the writer, is writing all sorts of metaphors that she's got to say. <laughs> so some of it we translated into, we ended up making that dialogue Cantonese. Um, and other times I would just simplify it so that she could actually get out the intention. Because it was hard. It was hard for her. I mean, her, I think her English is better than Gong Li or, you know, some, some of those Hong Kong actors that have come and tried to learn phonetically English. Because she actually, she, her, her daughter lives in San Francisco. Uh, her, actually, all her kids live in, Amer in California. And so she has, you know, the white son-in-law. So she has had to converse in English, and that, that really did help. But the job of the director is to make everyone look good. So you don't, you don't want to expose them. You want them to be saying things they feel comfortable saying in ways that they feel comfortable saying them. I have a question for Mina, the writer. <laughs> when Maria discovers the evidence of her husband's infidelity, her subsequent course of action, I think it would frustrate viewers who are expecting the usual movie cliches, like a like a grand confrontation. Right. Um, or therapy. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like you'd like her to drag him to therapy yeah. because her friend said, take him to therapy. But, right. And then they would just yeah. talk it out <laughs> or yeah. not. Right. Or throwing clothes on the front. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've seen right. all of these right. in movies yeah. and right. TV right. shows. Right. 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 Um, when you were writing your story, did you know this was the trajectory for Maria? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I always knew that uh, the, the idea was she was powerless and that the last thing she could do is actually just, well, one, there'd be no film if she just went, hey, what's going on? The movie would be over. It would be a 10-minute movie, right? But also that <laughs> she seeks power any way she can. So she takes the thong and puts it back in his pants and watches. What's he going to do with that? Because this way she's not exposed. He doesn't know she knows. So she has power. So it's, it's this idea of, like, the, to me, the film is a coming-of-age empowerment tale late in life. And it is about realizing you have more power than you think. And I, I certainly see that in the maternal line of my family is like, they, they kind of controlled everything even though they had no power. Somehow in, in the back room uh, behind closed doors, they knew exactly what was happening. So um, I, I always knew it was like, keep the pressure cooker on too. Like, ne I never took the pressure off of her, like, trying to figure out what to do with this. And that it was always hanging in, in the background. Of, because in, in, in real life with Maria, if, she, if he left, she could potentially have nothing. It doesn't matter that Canadian law says 50-50. She doesn't know how to read English. So he could just take off, right? I've, I've heard of situations within my own family where the wife didn't say anything because there was still a kid at home and nothing was in her name. The houses were in the company's name, the bank accounts were in the husband's name. She had a little bit of a, it, actually I, I stole that idea for the film. She has a little expense account for the house, but it's the husband always transferring that money. So she's not gonna go to Vegas. <laughs> you know? I was asking William if he was familiar with the concept of mad money or pin money, right. and he wasn't. And I said, well, that's what housewives in the 50s and 60s had to do. Right. You know, Can I have $20 for groceries, spend 15, then pocket five, so right. that you have a little contingency fund if you need it, because nothing is in your name. You don't have shared bank accounts. That's right. Um, the things that we take for granted now, that everything is sort of an us and a we, right. hasn't always been so. That's right. We're really one generation away from that's the way it was. Yeah, I think uh, female fiscal autonomy 
is it's the one thing that's made things a little bit balanced, but we don't have autonomy. We get paid less. We, right. we don't get the jobs. It's still, um, I think it's very hard for someone like Maria, who's 60, to enter the workforce. You know, um, I, I hear of it all the time with friends who devoted their lives to raising kids, and then the kids move out, there, and they're 45 years old, these women, and they can't find work, right? When a 45-year-old a man might be seen as powerful and virile and at the top of his game, but a woman, it's a very set, different set of circumstances. It's heartbreaking to watch Maria go through this trajectory and when she starts doting on him because he has become depressed mm -hmm. after the Japan trip is canceled. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. It's so hard for me to not feel this sanctimonious rage, and I just want her to be angry. It upsets me that she's comforting him because I just I feel so indignant. Right. And I understand that that's the balance, and that's the way Maria has to deal with it, but it's still very hard, and right. I want... I want to get angry. Right. And I want her to feel some rage as well, though I know that's not the way that's going to play out. It's just hard to watch her being so tender. Yeah. It, it was uh, great for me to direct because it's such a complicated thing, right? The normal reaction would be to be indignant and to raise a fuss, but... Or at I, least be passive aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Or sarcastic yeah. or something. I I'd like to recognize that that reaction, like to want her to scream and shout, it's coming from a place of, so do I, right? But it, it's coming from a place of, I mean, it's what, probably why the movie exists is because I'm like, I can't believe she would not do anything. I can't believe there are such powerless women in the world that are living in my backyard, right? But that, my, my wanting them to be indignant is my entitlement, they don't feel yeah, entitled to that at all. No. <laughs> right? So I wanted to illuminate that as well. Like the one of the key scenes for me um, dramatically is when the um, uh, Dylan character, the fiancé-in-law to be, fiancé-to-be, comes to the house. And the questions are, uh, um, Dylan's asking, like, did you go to university? Did you do you know Shanghai Tangs? And it's like it's such a different level of entitlement than the one Maria lives in, and really eye-opening to Dylan that this is a woman who didn't finish grade ten, right, or had to beg to finish grade ten. Right. We don't think women like that exist, but they do. And and I think about like um, there's a there's a crucial moment in when she's about to ask the lover G to uh, take him back. Uh, Maria is actually watching another can, female can collector collecting cans. She's just looking her, at her, right? And right. that could easily be Maria. We never look at the women who collect the cans or the men. We don't look at them, right? Um, you know, there's there, we've seen the Vancouver Courier articles where it's like, yeah, they're rich, <laughs> these can collectors, right? But no, not necessarily. And many of them are, um, many of them are very grateful for our garbage, because we live in such excess, right? So I wanted to talk about points of view in the film and how there's what the mainstream say is what's supposed to happen and, and how women should make certain choices because of their newfound stature. But at what point do we stop telling women how to behave? <laughs> you know, like she, uh, Maria is going to go back home at the end of the movie. She's, she's like, she's gonna, she says, she says, I'm coming back. 
She's not going to move out tomorrow. There's going to be some, they're going to have to deal with this in some way. But that butterfly has spread her wings. That's right. She has. And she's going to come back as a different person. And who knows if they're going to be speaking, right, at first. But but she didn't do what other people have told her to do. And I think that's the biggest emancipation is that no matter no matter what the audience thinks or what her what what her family thinks, she's for the first time carved her own path. First time ever. Like there's in the movie there, she she um yells at her husband and goes into the bathroom when he says um you, you know she just he saw her hugging Gabriel and how can you hug another man especially not one of us. And she says, "Well, he's my friend." And that's the first time in her life that she's spoken up to her husband. Like, that was a choice. We were, I was just like, Pepe's like, I don't know how to do this. I was like, yeah, you've never done this. You've never spoken up. to This is the first fight you've ever had. You might have had quibblings about, you know, um, whether or not to let your kid have whatever it is they needed. But this is a, this is a, I say white, you say black. And that's never happened before. Well, so that, I got goosebumps when she says, who are you to forbid me? At the end, she's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is the biggest thing that she's ever said. That's who right. are you to forbid me? Who are you to forbid wow. me? Wow. Yeah. Earthquake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You were talking about Dylan. Dylan mm-hmm. is sort of the peacemaker. She's meeting with Maria to sort of introduce herself. Mm-hmm. Ava goes to her dad to talk on behalf of Charlie. Mm-hmm. And Maria's the peacemaker talking to Gabriel. Mm-hmm. So how do you view women? Do you, do you think that they often have like a mediator peacekeeping role either in families or in relationships well i think i I don't think it's an i don't think the mediation role is exclusively female but certainly um i find it really funny like i don't know if i have a face that people just tell me things but i'm constantly shocked at like you know people i've met for two minutes and then suddenly they're telling me a deepest darkest pain which maybe it's because i'm a storyteller i always feel like it's such a gift but I also think it's because women, we're, we're used to that as the role of women, to be able to speak about, emo- for a man to be able to speak about emotions. He's not going to talk to his hockey buddy on the bench about that. He's going to corner Mina. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to be giving useless advice after because I'm so opinionated. <laughs> but um, I think there's, I think there's, there's a, just an, there's a, there's a social aspect to the, the female phenomenon that it's just different than men and it's verbal and it's emotional and sometimes very, very raw. It's like on the surface. It's not like, it's not like a, my, my brother-in-law has this great thing. He goes, Oh, whenever I feel anything uncomfortable, I just take it and I squish it right down, (laughs) right down as far as it'll go. And then I don't even feel it anymore where it's like, Oh, when I feel anything, I talk about it. I name it and then it goes away. Right. So, um, it's just the way I think it's partly the way we, our, our psychology is, is right there. It's really, really, um, on the on the surface and if, so it become and and if we're each other's mirrors then you see that in another human you become more open to speak to them about your feelings right right yeah does that feed into why in uh, i think of double happiness and and this film of course where where your antagonist is this uh is this old patriarchal figure who is being challenged mm-hmm. in his family um it seems like you you do not vilify them, though. I think I think you want to invite us to pity them, but it's not it's not as, as simplistic as saying like they're wrong. Well, the father in Double Happiness is very different than the father in Meditation Park. I think um, 
in Meditation Park, he's played by Ty Ma, who's a superb actor, who got nominated for Canadian Screen Award for this part in my film, right? Which is amazing. Fantastic. Because I think he's a fantastic actor. Um, but also, he made some great choices with the character. I mean, we talked about the fact that he, he, he flew in from L.A., I bring him into my office uh, in East Vancouver, and, and uh, he goes, so, I said, Scott, any questions about the character? And he goes, yeah, am I an asshole? And I said, absolutely not. I said, you do everything with love. And in fact, the more charming you can be, the more lighthearted. You are the life of the party. You walk into the room and people feel your presence. And we went with that. So to the point where when he's got some of the worst dialogue, like in that scene where Maria goes, I want a job. And he says, "What's a? you've never had a job be here before. What's a 60-year-old woman supposed to do? He says it with a smile. He says it with love. And I think like it, it's a, it is great character work because Ty and I talked about it. It's like everything he does, he does for the family. He even seeks a lover because of his family because he's so scared that he's going to die. It's all around mortality, right? He's, he's facing a 65. Some people go get Maseratis. He went and got a young woman. Um, and he wasn't thinking about the ramifications on his family that they would ever find out that... But he feels guilt for betraying the goodness of what a, what a male leader in a family should be. Um, so, so he's conflicted. I feel like the best characters, even if you're a villain, do things out of love. Because they never, like for an actor to play the part, like if you're playing Hitler, for instance, you are not playing evil. That's just not, that's a two-dimensional emotion that's, that's not going to carry the film very far. But if you're Chris Waltz in... Um, in Glorious Bastards, you're going to be the funniest evil person who actually thinks that he's making the world a better place, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, and he's a Nazi, right? So it, it's it's making those kind of choices that make a character really rich. And and I I like I think I, I like the gray. Like I like I like the pe- good people do bad things and pe- bad people do good things. That that's the reality as opposed to um, you know the 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 uh, the knight in shining armor or um, the black clad villain it's it's it that's not very interesting in terms of a story it does there's not much movement there and that's not i don't i think it betrays humanity in a way we're not like that is there a story to be told about the estranged sons in these two different families oh yeah is that something yeah, that yeah, interests yeah. you or yeah yeah, yeah. actually it's so funny that you ask <laughs> Have you been spying on me? <laughs> no. No, because um, I actually, after, you know, you look at your one, you never think you have a body of work, and then suddenly, whoa, I've been making films, and suddenly I have a body of work, right? And I, having examined the family dynamic, which is so rich to me still, um, the one thing I've never done is shown the disowned son, right? And I started getting in my head, wow, that's a story to explore. What if... What if the, the father and the disowned son have to get back together again because of the mother's illness or something, right? Something brings them back, the estranged son back. And I was like, yeah, I have to, I have to explore that. As, just as a writer, as a filmmaker, I have to explore that. But then I was like, I don't really want to do Vancouver Immigrant. I just did that. I just, I just tapped that out for this film. Every idea I ever had <laughs> for contemporary immigrant isolation I did for this movie. And it's like, I don't really want to explore it there. And I started thinking about multi-generational 
I started thinking about the kind of world I wanted to live in where race didn't really matter. And the only way that race doesn't matter is if in one family you have a Chinese father, a black mother, a First Nations kid, a Mexican daughter, like for some reason genetically in 500 years, we are truly mixed. Right? So there's no racism, there's no homophobia, you might have a disabled person in your family, you might have someone trans, it's all a mix, and it's deliberate. Somehow, someone figured out if we actually did this, the world would be a better place because we wouldn't be so greedy. Like, all our resources would have to be shared at this point. It would break a lot of boundaries, right? And I started thinking about that, and I started thinking about what if this family, this, this very rooted father-son relationship, which is really grounded in my reality and the stories I like to tell. And if I was Arthur Miller, this would be my thing, right? Like the family. I was like, what if you take that and transplant that into a sci-fi environment uh, into the future? Um, it would, it elevates it for me. It keeps my interest because you do, what you don't want, what I hate doing is repeating myself. Like you always want to take it to another level or do something different with it. So, so that's what I'm working on right now. Actually, it's one of the projects I'm working on is, is the father-son relationship. Oh, well, I look forward to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so on her path to independence, mm -hmm. Maria discovers the, uh, or she gets introduced to the, uh, the side business of uh, selling backyard parking mm -hmm. in the Hastings Park area. Mm -hmm. um, so during the summer Pacific National Exhibition, mm -hmm. um, where do you recommend parking? <laughs> in my garage. <laughs> I, I, it's so funny. I have a little boy, and he's like, when, when do we get to sell parking, Mom? And I was like, I don't even want people to know about us. In fact, I want people to walk right by our house, you know. But... Um, it's funny because they really clamped down about five years ago. There was a whole thing in my, because I live in that area. Um, I shot the sign that the city made that said backyard parking is a major I irritant. It was a real it's sign. a real sign. Wow. Oh. You never noticed it? No, I've never noticed it. Yeah, and about five years ago, maybe even a little bit more than five years ago, there was a thing where... Um, suddenly the city bylaws officers would come and harass the old people who were selling parking. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I looked outside the window and this smart car pulled up and the, all the sellers scrambled, right? <laughs> and I mean, it's certainly, my scene is a little bit more colorful in the movie and they run a little faster, but I was like, I can't believe it. So I phoned the city because there was a complaint line to complain about backyard parking. Really, which is sort of a veiled to me, yeah, it's a little dangerous. They're flagging people. No one's ever been killed. But I do think it's a veiled sort of um, racism. I do. Classism. They, it's like, don't do that. We're Vancouver. It's so uncool. Where to me, it's, a, it's a really part of our community fabric, right? So I called the complaint line. I totally spooked the person. I said, I told them my address. I said, this is who I, I live here. Um, I noticed your hotline that you've been, they, they, they were handing out pamphlets door to door. To, to say neighbors? You, so to neighbors. So they would, narc on, so they would narc on people. Oh, yeah, It's a real sense of community. Isn't that crazy? So I <laughs> called and I said, I'm calling to, to, I want you to write this down. I am not complaining. I think it's part of our community fabric. I don't see any harm in it. Why are you doing this now, right? And, and actually, it's mellowed out. So, so you can now sort of sneak parking again on places you're not supposed to park. But uh, uh, for a while there, everyone was paranoid. Like, 
if friends were visiting, they'd have to park in my garage during the PE because they might get ticketed, right? Uh-huh. It was like that. But now it's not like that anymore. It's calmed down a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is there a city in Canada that you'd really like to film in? I've never shot in Toronto. Uh, I've shot in Montreal, Winnipeg, Vancouver, and Halifax, actually. I, I was going to ask that. if you'd been to the Maritime. Yeah, I just did. I did um, a couple of uh, this hour's 22-minute sketches uh, in November. Fun. Yeah. So that was the first time I did that. Um, but I've never shot in Toronto, and I like the TTC line. <laughs> like, I like those streetcars. So there's something about... I'd like to shoot in Victoria. I think there's some beautiful locations there. Um I've been looking at the snowy mountains and going, oh, I should do like a stranded snow film. You've, you've <laughs> so, got the jacket for it. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> I've got all the gear. Uh, well, we started, you mentioned that uh, the film is premiering on Netflix in the U.S. and uh, other places. Um, mm-hmm. Is theatrical release still as important as it was, uh, considering that there's so many ways to get your movie out to, a, to its audience now? I certainly feel a theatrical release for this film is important because it signifies the coming of a new type of hero on the big screen. Just as Black Panther has made its splash, right, because it's heroes that we never see, I feel it's important that Maria, and it's so wonderful that we're getting a theatrical in Canada, is recognized as a hero. Because if if there's room for her, if there's room for her, there's room for everybody. Right. Uh, and that's really what I, what I work towards is trying to find a space for everybody um, without taking those big screens. It's still, you know, it's still great. Sandra played Christina Yang in Grey's Anatomy for 10 years. Right. There are a slew of young women of all ethnicities who worship her. They're not necessarily Chinese. They're not Korean women. Right who just worship her because she was a tough ass on that show. Well, that's great. But um, with a theatrical film, when it's scored for the big screen, when it's shot for the big screen, it really, it's the the best thing to be together too. Like I really, I I don't think we can undervalue the experience of being together these days. In any, I was actually thinking, gee, if there's a, like as I see we get more and more isolated, with our phones and that, you know, we're all staring at her. My mother's even taken to staring at her phone, right? It's like, we're all staring at her phones. Oh my God, we're all together and we're staring at her phones. Um, I was actually thinking, is there a business I could launch or something I could do to bring people together? And it was like, yeah, theater, film. We, that's what film festivals are for. The fact that uh, at the Rio at your screening or at the screen, when we, when we were at the gala at the, the um, Ford Center here, it was 1,800 people on their feet screaming after the film, hearing the laughter, hearing them hear each other laughing. Right. That's like, that made me feel good about humanity. And there's um, Sally Potter, a great filmmaker, she said, filmmaking is about release, relief, and hope. It's release because you laugh and cry, relief because you're laughing and crying with other people, and that because they're doing it with you, there's hope. And it's as simple as that. To me, whether it's a horror film or or something like Meditation Park, you're you're going through a journey together in an hour and a half. You've 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 taken that precious time and carved it away to experience something. Um, producers will tell you, like people who aren't sentimental like myself about movies, um, that 
streaming is certainly the wave of the, like it doesn't really matter if you get a theatrical release anymore people say they get a theatrical release and they run one week in a theater um it's not really because of the um chokehold that the marvel movies and the tentpole films have on cinemas across the world uh whether a person discovers you because you played at a feminist film festival in Norway or whether they see it on Netflix in the middle of the night, um, there, it doesn't really matter anymore as long as the content's being delivered. That's, that's the kind of cold version of the, what the producer would say. I still, like yesterday afternoon, I went and saw Three Billboards in Ebbing, Missouri in the middle of the afternoon, and the audience was amazing. They were... <gasps> Like, you know, things were happening. And I was like turning to my partner going, oh my God, it's a participatory event. This is great. Like if we were sitting at home watching this on iTunes, I would not get the, the, the two elderly Chinese people sitting next to me who speak perfect English freaking out during the film. They were just like, oh, like anytime anything happened, it was so great, right? I don't find that annoying at all. Like it's, they weren't talking through the movie. They were just reacting and you could feel the ripple. I mean, it's a funny film too. Like there's dialogue that you laugh through. Well, you, you laugh and do, you laugh by yourself if you're, I mean, thank God there's Netflix now because I can travel anywhere and I still have my best friend, whatever series I'm working on that I'm, I'm binge watching, you know, I take Frankie and Grace everywhere. You know, it's awesome, right? <laughs> or the comedians in cars. I'm always there. But, but there's nothing, nothing will replace the social interaction of, of, of being in a theater, I think. That's the importance of it. It raises the conversation into a cultural conversation. See, because the thing is about watching something on a small screen People talk about it, but it doesn't have the same currency uh, in terms of uh, being a cultural chain game changer. Or, um, uh, um, crit like for instance, you never see critical reviews of Netflix films, Netflix originals, very rarely. Why? Like they they really once they start doing that, once they start reviewing those films uh, and talking about them. It, in terms of their place in humanity's development, then I think that for me, it'll have more value. I like the idea that you're spending that time dedicated to that story. Mm. Uh, when I'm watching something on Netflix, I could take the laundry out of the washer, put it in the dryer, feed the dog. Uh, Check your Facebook someone. page while you're watching it. It just, yeah. Now I have a hundred minutes where I'm just concentrating on that story and I have no distractions. Yes. That's what makes it feel special and powerful is that it's I'm dedicating all of my focus to this thing which I unfortunately don't do to, in a lot of other ways uh, in the 21st century so it's I like that idea of spending a hundred minutes in the dark just doing this one thing and it's the only thing we do it that way like you're not not you're not sitting in that posture when like I was watching something on my laptop yesterday and it's like I'm sitting at the kitchen table <laughs> Right? Watching something on my laptop. Whereas uh, at Tinseltown, I was in a comfy theater. Phones were off, you yeah. know? Yeah. Uh, we were gasping together. There's something, you know, that it's like they're going to do studies at some point and find out that, like, I think, like, single story movies are, they're going to mandate them because it's 90 minutes, right? 90 minutes or more. And the, in all neuroscience, in or, uh, they say that. The brain to, to focus on an idea, say you're writing a, a poem or a song or a letter to your loved one, it's 90 minutes of full concentration 
to really sort of that's 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 the juice we have. That's the time frame in which we ideally the brain likes to like a mature brain likes to work. Right. And it's like so so we're that falls in line perfectly with the movie time. And there's nothing else in that time frame that we do an hour and a half. Really, there's nothing. Um, it's almost like trains your brain towards something. Right. Uh, was it different doing this independent feature than it was in 94? Have things changed? Does it seem any easier? Is it easier to be a female filmmaker? I know this is a big question, but has a lot changed? Has enough changed? Has anything changed? <laughs> um, it's take, it's, I'm better at what I do. I have more friends who are willing to support me. I have experience in the community and have worked in the community so that when there was no gear at the price level that we could afford, people stepped up to the plate. So I feel like that, that kind of, that, the longevity of those relationships really came into the fore. What's changed? Uh, we still don't want to see 60-year-old women as leads in movies. Like there's, I, I think I'm the one. <laughs> Agreed. I Chinese think, I think woman? Right. Yeah. Like, I think I'm it. Um, it doesn't, fiscally, it's not something people get super excited about because it's not a genre film. And, I mean, maybe if she was a kick-ass grandmother, you know, like, you could see that as a kind of a high-concept genre movie. But because this is adult feelings in real life, um, those, are, those are always going to be hard to make. Like, I had someone recently say, yeah, I wanted, uh, I had Sigourney Weaver for the film, but she it was a drama. And Sigourney Weaver in a drama, nobody cares. I know. <laughs> Everybody wants to see Sigourney holding the gun with the aliens, right? right? right. So, so it, I mean, imagine being Sigourney Weaver. She wants to be in the drama, and they're, we're like, yeah, we can't get it financed hmm. um, because it's a drama, right? So, so I hear that stuff all the time. What's changed? Oh, my God, I exist. Sandra Oh played a major character in a... A hit series for 10 years she you know and she was Chinese and the, you know it wasn't like she was pretending to be white <laughs> she you know we met her family in the show we we saw her heartbreak that didn't exist years ago um, I have to say because of maybe partly I've many Asian actors saw that first film with Sandra in it, Double Happiness, and decided to be, pursue the craft of the theater. And my cast for this movie, from the, from the big parts to the little, little parts, we have a phenomenal Asian acting community in Vancouver. There's more work here so that they're, so that my actors were just phenomenal. Like I, I just saw a, a, a huge difference in terms of even like the little day players, how dedicated they were, how professional they were, how they had experience on their resume. So that, that feels really good. Like, cause that means that just means more, right? We get to do more. Uh, is it easier being a woman filmmaker in 2018 than 1994? I would not say it's easier. I think it's, but I'm a happy, optimistic person. I've never, ever, it's funny. Cause like now with all the conversations about parody and, and, uh, what's fair and what's right. I never thought of it that way when, when I started, and I still don't think, I think it's impossible to do what I do. And so I expect nothing, but I'm grateful for everything, and I just keep going. And I, so I don't, I hope it's a little easier in the next one, because supposedly the doors are open. But it's amazing 
how many excuses I hear for not hiring a woman in a man's yeah. position. Ava DuVernay was talking about that, and she says, it's bullshit. Ryan Murphy says, it's bullshit. Yeah. It's not true. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the latest one I heard is, well, we have to hire the people that already, you know, that are that we know because we owe it to them. And it's like, well, then you'll never, ever hire someone of color. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't know us, right? Um, or a woman because you don't know us, right? So I don't... I. I I'm, I, I think Canada is making huge strides there. Like they were actually, because we are a, um, our creative sector is very much tied in with the cultural sector of the government. We are making strides. Um, I still hear the excuses. It blows my mind. I heard the other day one, um, well, yeah, we wanted to hire some women, but then they were really concerned that, you know, they have kids and it's such a long shoot. And I just, and this is from another actor friend. And I just went, nah, nobody asks a man about those things. Why let the woman make that choice? What if she gets her period during filming? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's gonna Ooh. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, it's uh it's I think I think the gatekeepers, if you if, if anybody out there has power and you're listening, just every time you make an excuse not to hire, think about that and think and I don't even think I don't think people like I said, I always look for the good in people. I don't think people are intentionally exclusionary. I think it's so systemic. We don't even realize. When you say, I just, I, I have a pile of friends I got to hire. Well, and all my friends all look a certain way or the same gender, <laughs> right? Then, of course, you're not going to open the door. And if you don't open the door, then there's going to be no room for your daughters later. So it's, it's a, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if we just keep it this tight. So um, it's like you almost have to check your own head and go, Am I, am I actually excluding here or do I believe this is a good thing? And it is not for me to fight. Like that's not, not for Mina to go hire the Chinese girl. Um, it's for a powerful person who's probably not of color, probably male to go, this isn't right. We need a more balanced uh, vision out there. And so, so perhaps, I, I mean, I'm always, I'm still working, I'm still here, I'm still doing it. So I'm very optimistic about it all, but it's, it's, I just, what I don't want is this little um, moment to disappear. So uh, we've got a crack, so let's kick the door open. That's kind of how I feel, yeah. Great, that's really encouraging. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Man. Power to you and all women filmmakers. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we are really glad that you uh, took the time to sit down with us. Yes, it was wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, the film is Meditation Park. If you're in Canada, you get to see it in the theaters starting uh, March the 9th. Thank you. And that concludes our interview with Mina Shum. So hope you enjoyed that. And check out her movie and check out our other content. Our website is filmedincanada.net. And um, you can check us out on iTunes or other podcast syndicating services. Uh, if you leave us a review on iTunes, we will take your recommendation for a movie to discuss on the podcast in future. And we're, William and I are both on Letterboxd. I'm at Married to a Fly, and William is... And Gore Sweater. And Chris, are you on Letterboxd? Uh, no, I'm just on Instagram at Chris Avery with three S's. Cool. Three S's in the middle. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, right on. Catch you next time.